begin here this afternoon, sort of where we left off. And uh, you're going to, it's going to feel to you like I'm really boring down deeper and deeper and deeper as the afternoon goes along here. And I am. Uh, what doesn't feel so good, if you take any, any uh, uh, teaching on public speaking, they'll tell you you're supposed to start out with kind of the mundane stuff and keep building toward the really, really, really big stuff and end with a tremendous climax. Okay, well, it won't be quite that way. It's actually, uh, you're going to feel me getting more and more detailed and talking about some specifics as we go along. But I hope that it is helpful because because uh, remember we're talking about creating culture and uh, what I've tried to remind myself about daily is Melvin don't react to culture don't get mad about culture learn how to create it actually actually create it. And so that's really the burden of what we've been working on here. So I just pick up here, I've been ended there on story, and uh, just run through some of this fairly quickly. Uh, you've heard me say that this produces heroes, and the observed culture there is we tend to absorb things from culture. I mentioned, for example, the the professional athletes very commonly absorbed as a hero from uh, from uh, the uh, just observing culture. I tell this interesting story across the country uh, for my son Jordan's sake. Some of you mentioned that you know him. <laughs> he's just a little guy, uh, probably, I don't know, six years old or so. He's sitting on the sofa, and he has a whole pack of uh, baseball well, I think they were basketball player cards. Um, I'm not trying to distance myself here. I don't remember that we bought them for him, but anyway, he had them. And he's looking through them and, and uh, all that, and he's kind of into all that stuff. So I sat down beside him, and I said to Jordan, does it say on that card there how often that man prays? Uh, does, it, does it say on that card anything about uh, his wife or He's on his second, third, or fourth wife, or where he's at. Of course, I was smirking a little bit while I was saying this, you know. And <laughs> he finally got the point. You know, when I was kind of pushed, I looked up, up at me and smiled. And he said, well, no, it doesn't say any of that. <laughs> well, so what does it say? Well, you know, how tall he is and what his average score is. And I don't think it's a whole bunch of other stuff, you know. And I didn't even I didn't even go into any big, long, preachy thing with him right then either. It just simply handed the cards back and smiled and said, well, be nice if they said on there how long he preaches or prays. <laughs> what was my point? Jordan, just, just remember, these men have accomplished what they've accomplished, and perhaps credit is due where credit is due. But just because a guy can run down the uh, court and bounce a basketball at the other end, slap it through a hoop, so what? Can the man live with one woman all of his life? You know that your bishop did. You know your deacon did. <laughs> you realize that you're surrounded with a lot of people who could do that, and many of these men can't do that. They just they, they seem not to have the capacity. Just remember, who are your heroes? 
I didn't give him that sermon at all. I didn't take his cards. I didn't slap his fingers. I didn't tell him, you bad boy. I just wanted him to think. Just think. Is it? Is this really who you want to give hero status to? And let him draw some conclusions along the way. Val heroes lead to values, and this is what I've been pushing on. Values lead to passion. You know, the people that we really like the best and we really enjoy being around are passionate people. I think that's what frustrates me about um, life sometimes. It feels like, you know, I'm a school teacher. It feels like we box people or push them into, I don't know, doing this, doing that, the other thing. Uh, and they have no passion for it. And then we want to shake them and say, why don't you have any passion? They will not have passion if they don't have values to it. Values are behind passion. Uh, and so I, I want you to see the positive side of what I'm trying to communicate to you. What we can be. What can possibly happen when people's values under the direction of the Lord Jesus Christ are shaped and formed through parents, through all kinds of different directions, and, and the movement toward a passionate group of people. And I think then is when we will have impact. Passionate people are the people of impact, wherever they go. Passionate salesmen sell things. Passionate preachers preach differently. They can say the same thing that somebody else says, but it will be said with more power and more impact if they're passionate. You cannot manufacture passion. Passion is a, is a result. Okay, and so you, that means you have to pay attention to the, to, the, to the parts and pieces that create that result. You can't force it down somebody's throat. They're not going to be passionate about church unless they have the values that lie behind the passion that drives it forward. This is the point there. Now, just need to look at my notes here a bit because some of this I might. Let's see. Where do I need to go with Yeah, uh, there's enough material here to go for a, cu a couple hours, and I don't want to do that. So let me see just exactly where I should head with that. Well, you know, this next slide is still worth looking at. I'm going to go through it rather rapidly, though, I think. This is a little bit of a summary. Again, affirming you must be born again. I don't want anybody to walk out of this, these sessions thinking that I am talking about a pull-up-yourself-by-your-bootstraps method, uh, I don't know, a human psychological way of doing things. I, I recognize just in my own life, in the lives of people I work with, it still is true. You can get none of what I'm talking about to happen if people do not know the Lord. Okay, that's... And I want that clear. Second here is we build on that with personal sanctification. Um, so in that personal sanctification, what is the goal? The goal is given in Ephesians chapter 4, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
you ever thought about the terminology that's used there? In Ephesians 4, where he says he's given apostles, pastors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What's the purpose? That we may, that we may grow up into perfection, grow up into Christ. And here's the terminology that is used unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Again, don't want to try to unpack that terminology just now, but uh, it, consider it. This is the aim. This is the goal. Sometimes at school, I give the students this little interesting exercise. Try it with your 16-year-old or sometime. I have, I have a 16-year-old gal sit down and write out the characteristics of what she thinks would be a perfect man. Um, and, and get, 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 let him go ahead and dress him right up. You know, give, give him some clothes. Tell him that. See, I'm safe here because I know it would never be me. You know, I, you can see how tall I am. I, I don't fit the, 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 get, Tell them to write in a height there, you know, six foot one or whatever and all that stuff. And see if they can just write out what a perfect man would be like. And then, of course, I have the gentleman do that. It's interesting the kind of responses you'll get. And I try to urge them. I, I'm not looking for a Sunday school answer now. Just tell me what you – I'm looking what, right straight from your guts. <laughs> what's a perfect man? What's a perfect woman? Right, of course, the purpose of the exercise is not to tear that apart, but I, I go right here just immediately. So, you know, the, our difficulty so often is we're using the wrong measuring stick. Uh, pretty often it turns out that we, we have a cultural acclamation and we have a cultural ideal or image of what the perfect man would be like or the perfect woman or whatever. Uh, and uh, sometimes it is equated with the measure of Christ, but uh, too often it's not. Uh, but here it is. This is, the, this is the measure. And that's real sanctification means that at the end of the day, I am more like Christ than I was at the beginning of the day. That, of course, assumes that I have an idea of what that measure is like. My acquaintance with the scriptures, Sermon on the Mount, etc. The third one here is, it is on this basis that we create Christian culture. And here's, so, yeah, uh, the creation of Christian culture through the church community. It has to be this sequence. Now, you can, you'll see immediately where I'm headed here, because if you go that direction, it has to go this direction. The kingdom of God, Jesus reigns. If you try it, the other way. So, the other way is to create culture. You will get some form of legalism if you try it the other way around. Okay, this is why... And it's confusing to us. I'll just admit to you, it's confusing. It's confusing to me as a leader. Because what I know is I cannot take one of these young people out here, seated in this audience. I don't know if there's any 16-year-olders here, but don't raise your hand. But, but I, know, I just know that I cannot take a 16-year-older and, and teach this to them backwards. That is, try to get them to buy into the culture and then go backwards to the Lord. Now, they can observe culture. And, and clearly, Jesus said this, by this shall all men know, and that is your love for one another. So don't hear me saying there's not a place where a 16-year-old is not observing culture and is actually learning and may be led to come to the Lord. 
uh, I did. I think I largely, when my initial commitment was me really saying, I love mom and dad. I love the way they're living their lives. I love their church. If I were, I couldn't have put it in those words then. I love their church and I want to be part of it. Okay, I, I, I don't really have an issue with that. But that's different to what I would be saying if we take culture and try to begin there and, and uh, get everybody in line with the culture and then hope they come to know the Lord. I almost always will feel that creates some form of legalism. So as big as I am on the creation of church culture and the importance of it, the, the creation, creation of culture, I want to be sure that you get this order right because you get it wrong and, and something will get haywire here. It'll create a scenario you don't want. And that's why I'm emphasizing here, let's not forget, it is of the Lord. And it, it begins with a salvation understanding of what Jesus has done and our commitment to him as Lord, as I started out with earlier. Okay, I'm going to skip ahead now to a section that, as I said, kind of bores down into things here a little bit. I entitled this little section, Crossing the Bridge. Um, and this piece, why did I go here? Well, I go here because I've taught school for a number of years. I've been a pastor. I've been a dad. And I've been trying to disciple or letting others and the Lord disciple me over the years. <laughs> that I know how difficult this can be. After the idealism is over, I know, let me say it differently. You can almost always get people to agree with the ideals. This is the way it should be. My question is, is that the way it is? And as I've asked myself the question and examined my own life on this and dug through it a little bit and, and tried to ask some hard questions, um, I, I come to this bridge, and I call it crossing the bridge. Uh, and I, I just share it with you because it was helpful to me as, as, uh, as this developed in my mind over the years. So on the one side of the bridge are ideals. And I just want to say this to you. Ideals are not the prop, our problem. Most people I know have pretty decent ideals. I mentioned to you that uh, Sheila and I were involved in a prison min ministry for 16 years back in Chambersburg. I, I never once heard one prisoner say, as we were talking to them about life, you know what, I hope my son grows up to be a drunkard. I hope he grows up to be a couch potato. I never heard one of them say that. If asked, what do you hope for your son to be? I heard many of them give actually pretty good answers as to what they would hope for their son. My point is even non-believers, criminals, can give you pretty good answers as to how life ought to be and the way it should be. Ideals, ladies and gentlemen, are not typically our problems. It's the bridge. And what does the bridge represent? Well, on the other side of the bridge, uh-oh, now we're boring down here and we're going to get boring. Habits of life. 
the actual, what I do about those ideals turns out to be that they're, they're related to, yeah, the habits of life that I have. I have almost never heard somebody say, I don't think I've ever heard it, and somebody say, you know what, I'm going to have to, I'm praying way too much. I'm going to have to cut that back. Have you ever known anybody say that? Uh, if you have, I'd like to meet them. <laughs> I've heard repeatedly over and over and over again, my prayer life has fallen to pieces. Uh, part, of the, part of the reason I'm in the mess I am is, is my prayer life. That's the bridge. That's the bridge. Everybody in this room knows the ideal. It's the bridge uh, in the sense in which how do I get across that bridge to where, to, to where my ideals actually become habits and practices of life? Because there is where culture is built. There is where culture is built. Few more pieces on that. Lest you think again that I feel like this bridge is a self-help psychological way of getting there, I, I just want to be sure that you understand that this bridge is held up by a good old gospel position. It's called repentance. You know, people ask oftentimes, what is the way to change? How do people change? How do they become like Jesus? And the term repent still captures it. It is the recognition that I'm off track and that i got to get back on track and that I need the Lord to get there. It's called repentance. Be saved. Attitude change. And I just want you to be sure to see that again. This bridge that I'm talking about is supported by the work of Christ. Okay? And we're not going to pull this off just by a simple self-help program. But not only that, I know I'm using some really old words here, but to cross that bridge, there's another old-time word used. The old word that people are, tend to be reactive to is obedience. The new word that gets tossed around a lot is alignment. I use it a lot. You've heard me use it here a couple times already. Uh, in many ways, alignment is obedience. It's, it's my life begins to align with what I say. I, and I... You know, one of the effects of social media and podcast and that whole list of things that goes along with it is that I'm amazed. I am absolutely astounded at how good the younger generation is with the words. They know the vocabulary. They know the phraseology. They know the words. They really do. Again, I'm not throwing stones. I'm just astounded at how well the words, we know the words. In other words, we know how to verbalize the ideals. My question still remains, so what in the world are the habits? What are the actual practices of life? Uh, let me give you one that's been helpful to me, just so you, you see where I, what I'm thinking about here. So I mentioned social media. Uh, okay, uh, what I know is I can stand up here, and so can your pastors, and you can preach through your blue in your face. The truth of the matter is we're almost losing it here with the social media. We're, uh, it's like these... Uh, these pieces of equipment are getting out into the hands of younger and younger people, and there's pornography, and it's not just the pornography. Is a, I don't know if it's the tip of the iceberg, but it's a, uh, there's a whole load of other things that huge cultural shifts I've already talked about. I have a computer. You can see it right there. 
Thank the Lord there's an IT person at, at FB that can fix everything that goes wrong with it that I know of, and that's a good thing because I couldn't. But I've got one of these, and you know what? I discovered that what was happening is I was getting up in the morning, uh, and you know, I, I'm like everybody else in this room. I, I know that it's vital to have a devotional life, a life that is connecting me with God. One of the things I learned from Covey, Steve Covey, I, 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 he's not perfect, but he has some good ideas. And one of, one of the, probably one of the more non-Bible books that have affected my life has been his book on seven habits. And uh, his first one is put first things first. Okay. Everybody in this room knows that. Everybody in this room knows that ideal. I know, and so do you. The question is, does it actually happen? Is, do we actually know how to habitually put the first thing first? Okay, let me tell you what happened to me. So I have a computer, and just gradually, gradually over time, it, the, what was happening is when I flipped that lid open in the morning, I get up pretty early, and for, it's just been a life habit of mine. Flip that thing open, go to the news. I love news. I like to know what's going on in the world. And, and I like to just, and, and, and see, I don't think it's a bad thing either. But I'm going there, and I'm, I'm just going to look just for, yeah, I just want to see what the headlines are. And I'll go, then I'll get to, the time lengthens, and it lengthens, and it lengthens. And I'm thinking the bridge, the bridge. <laughs> okay, put first things first. Just knowing something about the way all of this works. So uh, you might have seen a picture of Sheila and me when I first brought this up here. On my, that, that's my front page. So when that, when, that, when that book opens, I want to erect all the bulwarks that I possibly can against the stuff that goes wrong with those. And so the first thing that comes up is there's a picture of Sheila and me on Prince Edward Island on our favorite 40th anniversary, favorite vacation we ever took. Sheila claims it's the first vacation we took since our honeymoon that I didn't have some speaking engagement or something, and I told her she was wrong, but then I couldn't think of any. And so I thought, well, I guess she's right. <laughs> but there's that picture. That's first thing. Uh, okay, why? Well, I, I just want to remind myself. Here's a relationship I care deeply about. Here's a relationship I'm going to protect at all costs. Uh, here's, I, I'm telling you. Okay. Next thing I do is I go to my Bible program. And I open my Bible program. If, it's, if, if I have a Bible on my lap, I use that. If I have this, I, I open my Bible program, and I'm memorizing a few verses. Or what. I, here's what I found out. I won't go through the rest of it. But anyway, I have this routine that just to try to teach myself first things are first. And not just, not just then just get it out of the way so I can go to the next thing. Not that. That's a bad habit. If you know what's first, it ought to captivate the majority of your time and energy. That should be the thing that really, really pulls on you. Uh, and, and so, okay, I won't go on with that, but my point is it has to translate into habit into ways of life, the way you actually do things. Or what happens is, after a while, you realize you're not getting across the bridge at all. 
uh, that something is just not the way it ought to be. Okay? Ideals are worked into the culture of a home. Oh, incidentally, I should just back up a little bit. Then get a feel for how that begins to change the culture of a household. When, when dad is working at things, he's doing it imperfectly, but he's trying to deliberately and consciously actually put the first things first. Please don't hear me talking about any level of perfection or that my way is the best way. That's not what I'm talking I do know it is the best thing to put first things first. I do know that. Your method may be different, but ladies and gentlemen, it's the bridge. It's the bridge. And I want you to remember that. Now, I want to give you a few specifics on this. Oh, boy. I do. Uh, the next set of slides here is a little difficult to develop in this context. Uh, let me just maybe let you look at it. So here's a different way of looking at this. So here's community diversity. I, I, I know this, this has to be something that you all bump into. Okay. Here's, com here's, a, here's a community diversity. There's positives and there's negatives. Here's the other side of the bridge. And we're wanting to create a culture. I've already hinted at it that I think it's, it's important that we have a sense of identity and belonging. I'm not just pulling this out of my hat. Non-believing psychologists will tell you that healthy people have an identity and they belong. And if they're missing, it's an issue. So I'm saying, in my mind, when I'm trying to help a congregation, my congregation, think about where they belong. I want them to have an identity. I want to know who they are. And I want to know, and I want each of us to know that we belong. Okay? And then it can spread from the community, out from the community uh, from there. I'm going very fast with this. Again, there's no way to make this happen unless it is clear that I am interacting with a group of committed believers. Think outside your church. Think inside your church. Think outside. The bridge will not hold unless there is true commitment to Jesus as Lord. Okay? It's, and it's got to be there. This is not new to you, but the next piece here, if we're going to get across this bridge, must be this piece that we refer to submitting one to another. Uh, here's a fa very fascinating thing. If you were to take any course in business administration or something like that, you will never see this advice given, ever. You will see cooperation, a few things like that, but uh, a good old-time Christian submission where, in fact, I, you might even think the other person's wrong, but you're going to submit anyway, is, is a clear Christian teaching, and this bridge is impossible to get across unless there is a, 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 a capacity. And I use the term capacity because... I think sometimes we've lost our capacity to submit, lost our capacity to love. And again, you can't just hammer at people and tell them you have to love. You have to submit. There must be a developed capacity to do so. Okay, you can tell that I'm just I'll get in deeper here what I want to with this particular point, so I'm going to leave it. And I'm actually going to talk now about some very specifics about creating culture, and I'll go to one of the ending or toward the end um, slides that I have here.
also uh, creating culture. And uh, now I said, but just keep getting down here to deeper, deeper, uh, just details. Uh, and so Sheila and I, we didn't create this list together, but uh, we talked much. If I were to give our life story, you know, she, her mother was non-Mennonite. She grew up in a, a, a fine home, though. Uh, her, her dad did grow up Mennonite. Um, I grew up in a typical home. But I remember distinctly. Uh, we weren't married but a year. And I, I immediately confronted the question. Well, I, I tried to be honest with the questions. I was not really a rebel at heart. I, I, don't misunderstand me. I wasn't an angel either. <laughs> but I, I, I wasn't a person who just rebelled against whatever came along. But it suddenly occurred to me at age 20. I said, you know what? Okay, I was flying an airplane at the time. We had an airplane pilot's license earlier, and then we got married. And you know, all of a sudden, you know, I was in business, you know, a trained mechanic, and a few things like that. And I, I was in a shop, and I began to see that what was really driving my life was I, I want. I, I had no intention of leaving the church. I wanted to be a Christian, but I wanted to be a Christian with class. I even wanted to be a Mennonite, but be a Mennonite with class. I didn't have the capacity to be such, but that's what I thought I maybe would want to be. You know, it would be nice just to be a fine Mennonite young man and drive a Jaguar and fly a, uh, I don't know, a twin airplane or something, you know. And, and I also, I, I couldn't even give the categories at the time, but I realized there was something core wrong with my value system and the way I was thinking through all of this. And I, I don't remember if Sheila and I sat down in one session and talked through this, but over about probably six months, a year to a year and a half, we began to say to each other, you know what? If Christianity is real, if the claims of Christ are what he says they are, and what I hear people saying they are, you know what? It calls for every ounce of energy you've got. It calls for a total commitment. I didn't waver long, but I would have wavered for a little bit just thinking, listen, I'm, if I'm going to be a Christian, then I'm going to do it right. And if I'm not going to be, then I'm not going to be. Why should I let it hem me in? Well, you can see what I decided. Okay? If the claims of Christianity are for, for real, then it deserves everything you have. Every ounce of energy you've got. Have I managed that? Listen. I've diverted off the path more times I want to talk about. But that has been a guiding star that my life will be given for the cause of the church and, and the cause of Christ, the best of now. Here's some pieces in that we decided to build into our home and create the culture. We began uh, that some of our thinking was, the, you know, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount. I'm sorry. Yeah, in the Sermon on the Mount, the prayer. Uh, when he's giving his model prayer, he's, he begins, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. So we set it as a goal that we would try to create a culture in our home that was a kingdom culture. Uh, that, that, uh, that, uh, and we missed it. I, uh, uh, Lord, have mercy on us. It's kind of been in spite of us. But that was a goal 
And so we set out to try to do a few things in a deliberate fashion to actually create that culture. I'm going to offer them to you here. First of all, to understand that a culture, I think, is an array of love values. It's the array arranged in a certain mosaic, you might say. Uh, an array of love values that are expressed in, and now these are the points that we found would, were very powerful for us. So first of all, I would head up the list with song. There is no more powerful culture creator than song itself. Get around a little bit. Listen in. Folk songs. Uh, I'm not talking just strictly about uh, religion. Song is a very powerful culture former and shaper. So you can start talking about the rightness or the wrongness of rock music, et cetera, et cetera, and, and I, those are valid discussions. I would rather look at the positive side of it and ask myself the question, how can I use song to create the culture I want to create? How can I actually bring alive kingdom culture in my home and beyond through this very powerful culture creator? It shifts the discussion. I no longer have to talk to my sons and daughters about how this is going to ruin them. I want to ask them, how is this going to build them? Neither Sheila nor I are, are great musicians. I, we can sing, but we're not, uh, we're not great musicians. Uh, some of our sons, uh, I, a number of you know them, they, uh, they sing well, and I just say that for their sake. It's not because of me, I can tell you that. Um, but we did set out to say we are going to actually create a culture here. So here's what we did. There was a school teacher, and not to take up any kind of a lament, but you know school teachers have not notoriously been paid a whole lot. Um, but Sheila and I agree. We might not have a lot of money, but we have money for a few things, and I have money for some good music. I don't understand parents who are going to fuss around and fume around about what their children are listening to if they're not going to proactively do something about it. Well, you know, this is a little overstated, but so, you know, begin to buy music. We just started to buy music and throw it out of left and right, so they had so much that they, did, they, they weren't looking at for some others. That's not quite true. But deliberately, deliberately, actually forming and shaping their lives by choosing good music and putting it in front of them. Of course, we sang as a family as lousy as it may have sounded. We did anyway, because it was highly valued. Okay? And that high value is what I think helped some of our sons and daughters to move along and have a deep interest in music themselves. I hope you're hearing me right. Not at all did we do it perfectly, but we, we decided we want to form and shape that part of the culture in our home rather than just let it happen and then react to it. And that's two very different positions. Uh, and I, I urge that, that, that model uh, we found to be very, very powerful, for sure. The second one I would offer to you is one I've already emphasized, and that is story, our heroes. Again, not to trumpet the, the, the poor me thing that we had no money, but uh, you know, we, 
the question is, you, you know how that is. It really is where you're going to spend it. Most of us have money to spend somewhere. Okay. Well, if you were to walk into our house and back into, our, uh, into my office, which uh, I don't have any den. I know some people have dens. I have an office, and it's a, a Sheila's uh, sewing uh, uh, machine is in that office, and, and, and my computer is there. It's in, the children, when they were at home, they used my computer. Uh, I, I don't want, why am I saying all of that? No bragging. It's just simply to say we were wanting to create a culture. I did not want a place in my household that's just mine, nobody else. You didn't hear me say that's a sin if you do. You didn't hear me say that that's extremely wrong if that's what you do. That's not what we wanted. I wanted my computer wide open. No passwords on it. The children could walk in. They could see whatever I was doing. They could look over my shoulder. Sheila could look over my shoulder. Uh, doors wide open. This is, this is a place where sewing happens. This is a place where, where the, the computer is used. This is a place where my office books are at. And in the one corner is a shelf that has, I have no idea how many books now, probably, uh, I don't know if you know the estimate or not, Sheila, 200, 300, whatever it is, uh, of children's books. My, my, my wife collects children's books uh, with stories. And again, I told her, we don't have money for a lot of things. We got, we got money galore for good books. Buy good books. <laughs> Put them on the shelves. Make them available. Buy the great stories and get them out there where children where our children can pick them up and read it. To this day, when our grandchildren come to our place, they make a beeline for that place. And, and by the time the, the day's over, Sheila and I look at each other and say, well, who's going to pick up the books? Because <laughs> they're all over the place. I know they normally do pretty well with it, but I, that has, some of those things need to be done deliberately, thoughtfully. That's where I, I've got money there. I've got time there. I've got energy there. I'll put it there. So... On the way down here, Sheila and I stop in at a few antique stores. We have a few problems along that way. Uh, and, and so stop in at a few antique stores and yeah, go walk around. She's always, she's digging through the books. And I'll say, oh, there's a whole pile of children's stores. I, yeah, I look through them. I have all those. I'm, okay, keep looking. Find one you don't have and buy it. <laughs> keep adding to it. <clears throat> Habits create a culture. We need the Lord. I'm sorry, I keep going backwards. Uh-oh, I can see right there. I'm going to put the rest of them up here. If you want to write them down, you can, because it tells me my battery's just about gone. So you might want to run it right uh, relatively rapidly there. I'll be through in 15 minutes. I'm going to try here for 2.30. Um, boy, I don't know. I wonder if I should hit. This is going to quit here on me real quickly. So uh, it's in, my, it's in the, uh, my briefcase in the van. I think there might be a power strap up here somewhere. So, worship. Acts of corporate unity. I feel like I'm probably preaching to the choir here. But you need to create a culture where worship is highly valued. I grew up in a dairy farming uh, family. Sunday morning, I, I, I would have thought the world was coming to an end if my dad would have announced in some fashion that we were not going to be, uh, that we're not going to church this morning. I'd have thought, what happened? That something's wrong. 
Something's dramatically wrong. <laughs> you know where I'm headed with this. There are, again, some simple habits that actually make worship worshipful. One of them is to be there. <laughs> One of them is to be there regularly. One of them is to be there on time. I credit my wife for doing really well there in that area, helping me along that line. But beyond that, think beyond that. Uh, I, we tried in our home to, to actually say we're going to prepare ourselves this morning. We're going to ask ourselves, what am I taking to the house of God to contribute to worship this morning? What am I taking with me? Well, you can see how that harks right back. Thank you, Sheila. I might need just a little help here. Oh, okay, I might not have enough cord here. Okay, very well. You know, normally. Oh, is he coming with something? He's got something. Okay, I think we're good. So yes, uh, uh, worship. Worship has its habits. Uh, remember the music thing. Uh, I, it feels to me as though uh, we want to pay attention here. That's another reason why Sheila and I cared that that uh, our family cared about music. We didn't have to be perfect. We didn't have to be wonderful. But what we can bring that and offer it and beyond that. It should come on, I think. Okay, you getting it there? I'll keep going here, and hopefully it'll it'll come up here. Yeah, I've run out of time here. If I don't uh, to move along, but I think you get the the uh, the drift here. I'm trying to break this down into pieces to say, can we can we get beyond our ideals to what, and can we get to what we actually do that makes those ideals come alive in creating a culture that can actually be absorbed by old and young alike and out of which we actually live our lives. The fourth one I have here is education. And I, the little statement I have connected to this is defining the curriculum. Now, I'm an educator. I'm a teacher. And obviously, I care about this very, very deeply in our Christian schools. But don't let it stop there. I'm not stupid. I know full well that dads have more to say about the educational motives and desires of that 16-year-old son than I do. There's, he, has, he, he has far more, he brings far more weight to bear on that issue. And for that reason, I have to urge you dads on this. I'll never forget this. We homeschooled, Sheila and I did, back home in Chambersburg years and years ago. And long before it was very popular at all, it was very unpopular in both the world and the church <laughs> back in those days. And uh, we decided we would do that. We had some reasons for it. Uh, went in to talk to the, the local uh, high school administrator in Chambersburg. Fully expected to get a lot of pushback from him. 
sat down as we looked at me and he said he smiled at me and we talked for a little bit about what we wanted to do and we had at that time we had to get a sign off from the uh, from the administrator in order to move forward with that he, he leaned back he's a younger fella leaned back and smiled he said well mr layman i'll tell you what he said you're gonna you'll have a home school and you'll do just fine and i'm like okay um and so why do you say that he said, well, I'll tell you right now, your sons are going to see you get up in the morning. They're going to see you with books in your hands. They're going to see you studying. They're going to see you walk out the door with a whole bundle of books. You're going to come back home in the evening. It's going to be the same way. Uh, and he said, I've been around long enough. I know something. They will do well in a home school because education matters in your home. If education doesn't matter in your home, I would tell you something very different than that one. I've never forgotten it. That was from a public school administrator. I don't know if he was Christian or not. That's what he said. Uh, I'm saying to you that you create, not only corporately, but in our homes, we create the culture, the atmosphere out of which good, solid education happens. Don't think just books here. Don't, not at all. It's the work ethic. It's a whole list of things that we teach when things happen along these lines. I could say a lot more about that. I want to be, just need to move on. The fourth, fifth one you see that I have listed here is aesthetics. Um, our definitions of beauty. You talk about culturally driven values. We're really pushed around here really pushed around. Uh, we derive a large, a huge number of our of our concepts, our idealisms of beauty, not only physically but otherwise, but particularly physically, uh, from what the culture pushes down on us. Uh, I went to God, we would learn something differently. We, we would take 1 Peter 3 and passages like that and let those definitions of beauty actually shape us and form us. Uh, so that we 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 uh, we have deeper understandings there. I, d again, don't misunderstand me. I have I place a lot of value on just good solid art and and, and, and uh, artistic work. And again, we encouraged our children along those lines and uh, and our grandchildren and so on. Uh, I'm, I'm not anti art and things like that. Be careful of how you define beauty, though. Let the scriptures define it, and that affects a culture. Because if, in fact, we used to say Sears and Roebuck catalog, but we have to quit saying that, won't we? I understand Sears has gone out, but uh, nowadays, I guess, well, whatever the newest uh, Internet thing is that's, uh, that's happening. But all of the advertisements that are being thrown out there in the magazines, good housekeeping, that whole load of things we look through there, and unbeknowing to us, that's defining and defining and defining our, our, our concepts, our cultural view of beauty. A really stark example of this I'll never forget. It was uh, Sheila and I were riding with a couple that we knew, and in, uh, in, uh, we were young, married. And this gentleman winds down his window. There's this, I guess, a bathing beauty or whatever, scantily clad lady walking down the street, and he whistled at her. And I'm like, I didn't have the guts just to face him down right on, right on the spot, you know. But I thought, there it is. What in the world is your wife supposed to think? She's covered. She's got, she has a nice modest dress on and all of that. And you're whistling at that lady. What kind of definition do you think 
you are putting into her mind that you think is beautiful, pray tell. Like I said, I didn't have the guts to say that then, but that's what I thought. <laughs> uh, and, and it's that kind of thing I wonder what we're do- how we're defining all of this. We have a culture that describes, helps us to understand this. And men, if you want to, you know, the, we, we fuss at the ladies about their modesty and all that. If you want to do them a really, really big favor, I'll tell you what to do. Learn how to admire and exalt and see as beautiful a modestly dressed lady. And you know what? They'll gravitate toward your view of beauty. That's just the way, that's the way it is. The women gravitate toward the view of beauty that the men in their lives that they respect have. That's what happens. And so we better pay attention here. It's our problem as much as it is theirs, if not more, if this is an issue. But enough said on that one as well. Uh, The sixth one I have here is stewardship. I don't even know if it should be number six. I'm not going to say a lot about it today. Uh, But our use or non-use of resources. I'm on board. I, I am not an environmentalist. I'm not, I, I mean, a, a green or a tree hugger or whatever you call them. I'm, I'm not one of those. But I'm, I'm totally on board with the idea that it makes sense to take care of God's creation and to, and to treat it the way it ought to be treated, to farm the land the way it ought to be farmed, uh, to have a garden and to manage it the way it ought to be managed. Uh, the resources, it's to, to be a non-accumulator. That was another decision. That uh, Sheila and I made early on, we I, I won't go into it, but we were a little rash about it as far as that's concerned. But the decision that we would not be accumulators. And Sheila was saying, I sure wish you lived up there. We need a little more alignment there. Um, that's if you go above my garage and look at all the stuff I've collected over the years. And, and she's calling for alignment these days. And she's right. <laughs> uh, but uh, non-accumulators and so on. Uh, these are things we need to work on. The seventh one you see there is one that I don't want to hammer on, but I just want to point out something to you in this, and that is tradition or our, our liturgy. We have been culturally shaped to, to almost view tradi- tradition negatively. Uh, huge mistake. There are negative aspects to it. Uh, don't hear me wrongly on that. Of course there are. You have way more positive traditions that are carrying you along in your life than you can even begin to think of. And they really are traditional. I'll give you an example here. If you think of Christmas, for example, uh, even Christmas as, as, as it is experienced throughout the world, think for a moment, what would happen? What do you think would happen if you could somehow magically strip out that practice or that thought, that traditional practice and thought, however it is practiced throughout the world, if you could suddenly just strip it out of history, it just suddenly disappeared. Do you think that would be good or bad? Now, you, maybe you think it would be bad. I'm, I, that, yeah, yeah, but we, that would be a good thing. I think it would be lost. I think that worldwide tradition has carried something with it that somehow appeals to the brotherhood of mankind all over the place. Uh, and, of course, it has its flaws. I know all about that. And I, I can argue those points, too. But still, that is a tradition. That is a Western tradition that carries an enormous amount of freight with it. That if you suddenly took it out, that freight would be gone. I think it would be. I think it would be a net loss. You have no idea the number of things in your life like that that just carry you along 
from generation to generation, day to day, in and out. They're really traditional things. But they're very powerful to create a culture. In fact, I'm not so sure that tradition is, I, I don't know what percentage it holds in actually creating culture, but it's huge. Very big. I'm well aware it has its negative aspects. Well aware of that. I'm just saying, before you speak so negatively about tradition, remember that much of your life is formed and shaped by the Western cultural tradition that is not even religious. But it's just been formed and shaped by those traditions. And that's why you are the person you are in many, many respects. If that's true, then I said to myself, then in my home and in my church, God helping me, we shall learn to use tra- the power power of tradition to shape and form our lives in good ways. Now, I hope, you get, you get, I hope you're hearing me right. I think I am honest enough to recognize when we have some traditional practices that work against us, that work against our core virtues and our core values. We ought to be honest enough to grapple with those. While we're grappling there, I'm asking you to remember (laughs) that tradition is one of the more powerful formers and shapers of the next generation that you can find. Here's one that we do. And we do it very purposefully and for a reason. Every five years, Sheila and I, uh, every fifth anniversary. So this is, uh, we're coming up on 44. So we have 45 coming up two years from now. I, the whole family will get together at a cabin somewhere. I know a number of your families do that too. Embedded in that is we bring men's music along. Uh, and, and one of them is assigned to bring some men's music, typically a song that we're going to learn and maybe a few songs that, that we've sung before as, uh, as the men in the family. And we, we get this sort of around the table there, and we get these, these song, uh, song sheets out, and we begin to sing this music. This is a tradition. This is going to happen. And I see the little boys there, you know, the little grandsons, they're gathered around, and they're, they're watching their uncles and their, and their grandpa, and they're, they're there with their, their sort of big eyes, and, and, and this is very, very fast. I know of a surety something is being formed and shaped in their hearts in those moments. I know it. I didn't say they're going to turn out perfectly. I, that's not my point, but I just know it's a powerful shaper. And so we, we gladly do this, but it's a tradition. It's a tradition, a family tradition. We, do. we also have a family canoeing trip. We could write whole books on those canoe trips. won't start. But they, they bind people together in, in culturally in ways that nothing else does. And that's what I'm urging us as communities and as churches and as families to consider. <clears throat> I hope you heard me right on that. The ninth, eighth one I've, I have here is boundaries, and I already mentioned that to you. A tradition is no, tr- I'm sorry, a culture is no culture without boundaries. We may dispute them, and we may wonder where they ought to be said, but let's not dispute the idea that there ought to be some, that give us some definition. That should never be disputed. We should sit together and talk long and often, and with each other many, many times, to, 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 to bring our hearts together and the places as to where 
those boundaries ought to be. And I've learned something. I don't know if this would be useful to you or not. Useful to you or not. Sometimes I can become such a perfectionist that I'm not willing to actually accept getting 80% toward where I'd like to be on some of these issues, let's say. Okay, you follow my so, – so I'm, I'm a church leader. Okay, well, I, I, I have my values, and, and um, oh, just tongue in cheek here, I've told the, the, the group back home on occasion, I said, well, you know what, if I just set the boundaries wherever I felt like setting them without any discussion at all, you'd probably all leave like now. <laughs> if, why am I saying that? We all have to have some give and take here. There has to be a way to find our way forward to a place where we have definitive boundaries that help us to know who we are and all of that. Okay? And it, it is very, very, very hard work, I have discovered. We have to put that work into it. We have to put that energy into it uh, in order to actually get to places where we feel reasonably comfortable with each other as we set those boundaries and I've, I've just found that homes set their play, their, them differently. I know we did differently than some others. We have to be okay with that. But whatever we do, let's not get the idea that if we just discarded the boundaries, then the gospel would really go forward. I don't agree. I, I honestly don't. I don't, don't think that would. I don't think that's the forward movement. It's been tried, tested. It doesn't work. And last of all, and I want to be very, very clear on this. This one probably should be first, so it should somehow mask all the other ones and say that this one, we have to have a culture of love and belonging. Uh, all of it has to be couched in that. As we talk about these issues and work our way through them, it has to be there. Uh, working with parents, working in schools, working in churches. Uh, I know I stated it before, and one of you repeated it here. I just say it again. Where love abounds, and if people know that you love them, there's space for mistakes. Where love does not abound, there's not only no space for mistakes, but you can't do anything right. It's just really hard to do. It's because it's when people know that I care about you, and you know if I'm rebuking you, I'm rebuking you because I care about you. If I'm affirming you, it's because I care about you. If I'm receiving the same, it's because we care and love for each other. And so I just want to end there by saying, it really is true what Paul said. Now abide faith, hope, and charity, but charity is the greatest of all of these. And I want to be sure that you hear that. Whatever you heard in these four sessions that I've shared with you, please hear that without the love of God in our hearts and that expression toward each other, every piece of what I said is basically unworkable. And so may God help us as a people to learn what it means to love each other. I'm reminded of one of the brothers here uh, said this to me over lunch. He said, isn't it true that if we could just somehow get a hold of the two great commands, and Jesus said this, and these two hang all the law and the prophets, love God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. Much of what I said was all about that. Uh, first things first, all that. Love it with heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. Ladies and gentlemen, on these two hang the future of our congregations in every respect. Let's pray. Father,
one more time, I ask you to take these few words and use them as you would. I pray that you would bless this congregation in a special way. I know that the last few years have not been that easy for them. You know that too. And you know that surrounding us are many congregations and people with good hearts, people who love you and who intend to move forward for the cause of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom in our generation to know how to love one another deeply and profoundly, to love one another deeply and profoundly enough to know how to engage one another in conversations that are helpful, maybe even occasionally a rebuke, a word of affirmation, a few moments of deep wrestling with what the Lord, what you would have us do, a willing submission to one another, a commitment to the body, and an understanding that that commitment to the body is really a commitment to you. Lord, I guess there are many things we could pray for here. I, I just pray a blessing on this congregation. Wisdom for the leaders. Capacity from each one of us to work together in good ways. And I pray, Lord, that we would see out there the, those fields that are white and ready to harvest. And just remember that they still look for that city which was built by God. And I believe, Lord, that you're wanting to build such cities in our congregations and beyond, in our families, our congregations, and Christians all over the world rise to the challenge today to be salt and light in a world that has lost its way. And I pray it in Christ. Amen. Thank you very much for your very kind attention. I can assure you that uh, Sheila and I are headed home here, uh, not just immediately, but shortly. Um, Already, you found your way into our hearts. God bless you.